getting to grabs with. Yo. Ahoy hoy. Hey. How you doing? Yeah, how about yourself? Yeah. 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 You been busy? Yeah. Been up too much? Uh, not really. Uh, what have I been doing? Working, and when I'm not working, I'm probably eating. And when I'm not eating, or sometimes while I am eating, I'm watching Peaky Blinders. And uh, cool. that, that is my life. Oh. oh, and also some wrestling occasionally as well. Cool. How about you? Have you been? Uh, have you been uh. up to? I took a week off work, so I decided I was going to try watch a bunch of movies that people always say are great, but I'd never seen. Ooh, the classics. Go on, what, yeah. what classics have you seen? Well, the one that uh, I kept thinking about the most was uh, Rocky. I'd Beautiful. never seen Rocky before. One of my favorite films, best boxing film ever, probably. Yeah, um, it was weird. The, the whole time I was watching it, I kept thinking, I want to watch The Wrestler now. Yeah, that Which, one is superior in my mind. Yeah, I don't know if it's just because it was more real, I guess. Like, The Rocky's very much a American Dream stylized tale. Yeah. Like, how the hell is a pro boxer going to pick just some guy who wrestles outside of Chicago? No, Philadelphia, wasn't it? The American Dream, come on. Yeah. But um, you are right, um, but I can't watch The Wrestler, really. Because it's just too for being depressing and it's too close to home. Okay. Uh, um. Uh, oh, I got a message saying that our guest is waiting. Oh to yeah, in. sorry, he is here. I'll just admit him now. Cool. Drum roll. Andy. Hello. Can you hear me okay? Yes, yeah. fantastic. How are you, sir? You're good, thanks. How are you? Uh, <laughs> ticking on, ticking on. How is yeah? How is lockdown treating you? Lockdown free? Pretty much uh, the same as the first two, but maybe a bit worse. So just like the standard movie trilogy, I guess. <laughs> yeah, the third one is always the worst. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I've just been, well, just saying, I've been watching the Rocky movies. I think three might be my favorite. Which one's three? Is that where he fights Ivan? The one where he fights Mr. T. Oh. That was the worst um, one. Oh. God, no, no. no. Four. Four's bad. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, you are right, actually. Yeah. Uh, two and three I liked more than the first one. I just thought Rocky was a bit unlikable in the first one. Mm. I thought it was more relatable in the other two when he's famous and doesn't know what to do with it. Is that how you feel in your life? <laughs> oh, all, all this fame is getting to me, Andy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. Um, so, Andy, um, thank you for taking the time to join us today. We know you're very busy. Try not to keep you for too, too long. Um, welcome to our humble little podcast. Um, we... we kind of like to focus on this podcast on well, because most wrestling podcasts are by veteran wrestlers who've had years and years of experience under their belts and we are completely inexperienced trainees um, we kind of like to hear people's uh, stories about how they came to 
be in the wrestling business. And I kind of know like some of your story, but we want to go like all the way back to when you first saw wrestling or wrestling, you even became aware wrestling existed. Can you give us like a brief life story on that? Yes. So uh, I guess I've I've been a fan of wrestling since I was four years old. Um, I originally started watching it. So in the UK, wrestling, uh, just to obviously try and, I don't know if I'm giving you too much information or not enough, but obviously in the UK, um, wrestling was only available on uh, Sky Sports at the time or WWF was anyway. Um, And you had to be, it wasn't as widely available and as widely popular as it is right now. Um, Sky Sports, that is not WWF. Um, And um, you you essentially had to be rich to have Sky Sports. Um, And I was never, my family was always poor, but I was lucky enough to have a rich auntie um, who had Sky. Um, And she used to tape the wrestling for my for her next door neighbor's son um i guess that may have been a common practice in the day take you know the the person with sky in the neighborhood you know tapes the stuff for their you know the, the other people in the, in the neighborhood um on, the, on an old-fashioned vhs mm-hmm. um, and she and, and it's part of this story my, we used to go to my aunt's every weekend every saturday um she had the biggest house i guess so everyone used to converge on my aunt's house so there'd be um my myself and my cousins uh, my sister um would all go to my aunt's house where they're all female um and for the, for the whole it wasn't really an issue um because you know we were just kids playing games but then obviously um girls have tend to have different interests to guys or at least they did in my day um and um you know whereas i was into i guess cars and stuff like that and you know he-man my mm-hmm. sister and my cousins were into you know poly pockets and barbie <laughs> stuff like that which obviously i wasn't that into so at times you know when when the play deviated from hide and seek and games of tag and um you know, and swimming in my aunt's pool. She was, you know, we were lucky. She had a pool. But like it started off as one of those old school pools, you know, like which were above ground. Oh, yeah. Um, Bucket above ground. But then uh, later she had a farm built in the garden, um, which everyone helped dig dig the hole for, I remember fondling. Um, But anyway, she, um, uh, you know, while they were all doing that, um, I was, I started kicking up a fuss because I was bored, (laughs) <laughs> probably lonely and my aunt was like oh i'm take i take this wrestling for the next door neighbor and she put the the wrestling tape on and literally from the first second i watched it i was hooked and i i don't really know what it was that got me hooked but um you know if i was to speculate i would i'd look at just the larger than life characters um the bright lights the sounds you know the huge crowds um it was just uh yeah, it just grabbed me. Um, I guess wrestling is a very sensory thing. Um, and I think that as a result, um, it does really appeal to children. And I always say that if you're flicking through, uh, uh, you know, if you're flicking through the TV channels, um, it doesn't matter if you're a fan of wrestling or not. 
you know, if you back in the day, it used to be a lot easier because there was less channels to flick through. But if you're flicking through and wrestling pops up on the TV, then all of a sudden you stop and you spend a couple of minutes watching the wrestling, whether you're a wrestling fan or not. And you mm-hmm. might look at it to be like, this is rubbish. Look at this fake wrestling. Or you might look at it and be like, wow, this is amazing. But because it's got that sensory thing, like it's very hard to flick through a channel and not be kind of stopped and captivated for at least a couple of seconds by wrestling. And that's what happened to me as a child. It just sucked me right in. And literally from that day forward, going to my aunt's on a Saturday was a favorite, my favorite thing to do. Um, I look, for, look forward to more than anything because we watched wrestling every single Saturday. Um, and I've just been captivated, obsessed um, by it ever since. Amazing. So from being very young, did you maintain being a wrestling fan all through school? Because me and Aiden have had this discussion before where wrestling kind of becomes uncool when you start getting into your late teens, or at least it did for us. So we kind of almost had to hide our, our wrestling fandom a little bit. Were you just a fan all the way growing up, or did yeah, you? I was, I was. I was uncool and proud of it. <laughs> I, um, well, I was at school. I, I considered myself to be an in betweener. Um, yeah. I, I kind of, I had. It's weird. I had a lot of naughty friends. You know, like the the naughty cool kids. Yeah, cool kids. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they were a lot of them were my friends, but also so were the not so cool kids. Um, so that's why I always say, like, I think I was probably an original in betweener. Um, <laughs> So I wasn't cool, but I wasn't uncool. Um, but yeah, wrestling, I've just, like the whole time, there's never been a time in my life when I haven't loved professional wrestling. Um, it's something that stuck with me throughout. And, you know, there were times in my life whereby I wasn't necessarily up to date with pro wrestling. So like when when you become a cool teenager and you don't go to your aunt's every single week, um, that obviously became hard for me to, to follow wrestling. And, and uh, again, we always used to go on a Saturday and obviously Saturday was like superstars um, and it didn't lend so much to in a day like uh, it raw, when raw, basically when raw became a thing, um, superstars became a B show. Um, when I used to watch it, it was the A show. Um, mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, so I, I wasn't always as up to date as I would have liked to have been on wrestling. Um, but I always, you know, I always tried to keep up to date with it. I always read the magazines. I got Power Slam magazine every single month. Um, before that, I was getting WWF magazine, and you know, like a, just any like there was. There's never been a time when I haven't loved pro wrestling. Um, I've always tried to retain that sense of fandom, um, and perhaps now is probably the time when I'm watching less wrestling than I've ever watched before, um, or what I say less modern wrestling than I've ever watched before. Um, but I'm watching a lot more old stuff um, because the business seems to have run away a little bit. But, um, you know, I still watch AEW regularly, weekly. Um, I still, uh, I can't say I watch WWE at all. I still watch New Japan um, regularly. Um, But yeah, there was a time when there wouldn't be a second of programming that I wouldn't consume. But, um, you know, Raw recently, and more so Raw than SmackDown, has done a real good job of... um, turning away a lifelong fan (laughs) (laughs) um oh speaking of AEW so what they've been three years now or is it approaching no two or three years um what's really do you think's kind of set them apart and you know what makes you feel excited about more about AEW than you would about WWE currently 
Um, well, don't get me wrong. I don't think AEW is the perfect product. Oh, no. <gasps> um, definitely the uh, yeah. finish to their most recent pay-per-view uh, illustrates that. But, uh, yeah, but I, well on that. stuff like that I look at and, uh, like, uh, I, to me, like, as someone who promotes wrestling shows, I know that, unfortunately, sometimes shit happens. Yeah. Yep. Sometimes, like, it, you know, they say they, they trialed it beforehand and it worked fine and it's just it's just sod's law, you know, and it's just it's just real unfortunate. Um, I said, like, um, from for me, like, um, I feel like a, a worse mistake they made on that show was having Jade Cargill as a part of the crowd um, and having her cheering Cody as he made his way to the ring because I think that she's got potential to be a superstar, um, and I feel that if you're um, and I feel that long term that can do more damage than, you know, what essentially is just a stunt gone wrong. And I think AEW did a good job of salvaging that the best they could with the story afterwards um, for whatever that was worth. It was a shame, but like it wasn't the end of the world. It was it was. And, and trust me, there's been so many times as a promoter where I've tried to run where I've tried to do something. And in my mind, it's gone off perfectly but in execution. It doesn't. Um, and it doesn't matter how much attention to detail you've put in it before, um, it just kills you, you know. So I absolutely empathise with with AEW for that situation. Unfortunately, I've never had anything quite on that scale. Um, but um, but I guess in terms of what makes it stand out, I just guess it's on the most part, it's just logically booked professional wrestling, and it's it's there's storylines and there's angles, but the angles are based around professional wrestling. Mm. Professional wrestling is what's on the marquee. Whereas I think that in WWE, a lot of the time, um, the professional wrestling is an inconvenience to the soap opera that I mean. um, yeah. And I think that there's a lot of poor attempts at, at humour in WWE. Um, and I think that, um, you know, that a lot of the time they are so detached from the real world. They talk about the WWE universe, um, but that's uh, almost a reality. They're in their WWE universe, the real world doesn't exist. And I think that that's a big issue. I think in AEW, the real world clearly exists. Um, so it's just nice to have, um, and having fresh talents on top as well. Like you look at this show, this past week's show had Darby Allen and John Silver as your main event. Um, you know, just two young, fresh guys, just something different, you know? Um, and I think that that's, that's desperately needed people to put faith you know if i were to look at that i think it was actually the highest rated segment of of the show the john silver darby allen match um but if i were to look at darby allen if i were to look at the show they had laid out you know you've got a kenny omega matt seidel match on there you've got a young bucks uh tag six man um you know you, you're telling me you're going to put darby allen and uh and john silver on last you know i think that's probably a bit crazy but you know it worked and I think that that's good. They're taking chances on new, fresh, exciting talent, um, and and that's I think that's what stands them out from WWE. Definitely, um, and I, I get that they're bringing in uh, you know older guys like um, Sting and Big Show, Christian, um, but I feel that is needed to bring you know existing fans or casual fans eyes onto the product um i mean like my brother didn't start watching AEW until sting appeared and now he's totally in he's really behind darby allen so i think they've done a good job of using veterans 
to come in and, and build their, their newer guys. Yeah, absolutely. And I like, you know, I don't necessarily, again, like I feel like Christian may have been a reach too far, um, but I certainly see the value in using um, in using old, older talent, older established talent. Um, and, and yeah, like I, you know, that's, that's always been when I promote shows and I put imports on the shows, that's always been the goal. It's not been to, as long as you don't lose sight of that goal. So like, it's uh, my goal is when you, when I bring in the imports, so for example, I might bring in Tanahashi to a show, but when Tanahashi comes into the show, um, I want them to, uh, I want the people to come to see Tanahashi, but leave wanting to see a Ricky Knight Jr. or a Dan Maloney. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that's kind of my mentality behind imports and I think that that's a sound mentality you know if you're bringing in legends you're bringing in veterans as long as they're not uh, uh, as long as they're not blocking the pathway for younger talents and as long as they're used to enhance younger talents then then that's the most important thing to do I think AEW do do a good job with that um, and I hope that they do that with, with Christian as well um, I think like I say jury's kind of for me the jury's still out on that one but we'll see what happens and I think that um, you know I it's been seven years since he's worked, um, but if he can work at the same level he was before, um, then I think he'll be a sound, um, you know, a sound investment. Absolutely. So going back, uh, you'll get these videotapes from your auntie. Who was like the first wrestler to stand out to you? Um, well, a few things. So the first thing to stand out to me was, um, rather than wrestler, was um, it was just after WrestleMania 8. Um, and anyone who's familiar with WrestleMania 8, the Macho Man, Randy Savage, and Ric Flair match, there was oh. a recap of that match. Um, and, like, it was funny, because it's like on a, you know what I mean, like a Saturday afternoon or whatever. And mm -hmm. I just remember the enduring picture of Ric Flair with, you know, with his bloody face all through his blonde hair, grabbing Miss Elizabeth and kissing her. <laughs> and, and that's one of the first things that stands out to me, uh, as a memory that I remember. Um, mm -hmm. I also remember very vividly Big Boss Man getting the snot kicked out of him by nails. That traumatised me massively. Yeah. Uh, also, um, also, Ultimate Warrior was um, someone who stood out to me massively as well. Very rarely he was on, um, but he also um, stood out to me as well. Um, so I guess those would be the guys that stood out initially. Then obviously once I was watching it for a while, British Bulldog became my number one. Um, and then very quickly after SummerSlam 92... Um, Bret Hart became my absolute favourite. Okay, what was the like? What was it about Bret Hart? Because he's someone that appeals very much to British fans more so than I'd say American. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's just because he's real. Um, I feel like you know, in a world of cartoon characters, if you look at that time, ninety two, ninety three, um, you know, we had a lot of characters with Doink the Clown, you know. Mm. Um, characters like that who Brett amazingly uh, had a very believable and good match with you know but I think that was Brett's craft you know um, but I feel like with Brett it was very real um, and I, I remember when I was lucky enough to, to meet him I said to him about the Bulldog match was I felt I you know I liked Brett Hart but I loved British Bulldog because he was just British you know and I don't mm -hmm. think anyone I don't think anyone can really fathom the level of a star that British Bulldog was. Um, he was front page news in the United Kingdom for that one year, at least. Um, you know, after that SummerSlam, kind of uh, the popularity dwindled a bit. I remember, even remember when he was in WCW, he was still making headlines in the papers. Um, yeah. But like to be a legitimate front page news story shows you the level of celebrity that you are. 
um, and to be in that, this kind of niche sport and be the only British man doing it, um, you know, that was me, you know, it's the same kind of um, fever, you know, you know, when England play in a, in a World Cup or European Championships and the whole nation gets swept up in that. It was that same kind of fever that I was swept up in with British Bulldog and that SummerSlam. And yep. then uh, when when Bret Hart lost, he made me feel so guilty <laughs> because he's so dignified in defeat. He made me feel so bad for cheering against him, yeah. which then made me want to root for him even more. And then obviously he went on to become the champion. So he was—he just made everything he did, he made real. And that was that feeling of guilt was deliberate. He wanted fans to feel like that. He wanted fans to feel bad for him because he wanted fans to see him as, a, as someone to root for in the future. And it worked masterfully. Um, and I think he's one of the few guys, you know, at the time, like you go further forward, you look at 95, 96, um, if you were to say, who was the best wrestler or who was having the best matches on the show, Shawn Michaels or Bret Hart, people would say Shawn Michaels. But I feel like if you watch back Bret Hart's matches now against Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart stand the test of time way more than Shawn Michaels. Mm. Um, I'd agree, I, yeah. I, I, I just think that's down to... And like obviously the, the big example is if you look at WrestleMania 10, I know obviously time's passed a lot, but you look at WrestleMania 10 and everyone said on the night the, the, the best match was that ladder match between Shawn and Razor. Um, but history will tell you the best match on that card was Brett versus Owen. Um, and that's because that match holds up to this day, whereas the ladder match on its day was fantastic, but it doesn't hold up so much because people have surpassed it in terms of stunts. We've seen the match multiple times um, and we've lost that kind of shock wow factor of that match. Whereas I always say good wrestling is good wrestling. It doesn't matter the environment. Um, it doesn't matter the language. Good wrestling is good wrestling. And that's what Bret Hart delivered every time. Um, and I think, you know, also his ability to be able to uh, diversify his style to his opponent. You could see real tactics in everything he did. When he worked Diesel, you know, he'd target his legs. He'd be a little bit, because he's so tall, he'd be mm -hmm. a little bit more vicious because Diesel had the power game and Bret couldn't outpower him. So he had to you know, all in the name of trying to win a professional wrestling match, not being a nasty guy, he had to go to those depths to, you know, to try and win the matches. Um, and I think that that's, that's just what, to me, made him stand out. Just the realism, the storytelling, um, and, uh, and yeah, just making me believe um, and, and making everyone who watched believe. Um, speaking of SummerSlam, as a promoter, do you feel like WWE kind of, dropped the ball and never really following it up with great big British pay-per-views following that? Um, yes and no. I feel like, you know, there was obviously a financial reason. And again, without getting into too many details, um, and, I, and I'm and i not standing here professing to be an expert in, the, in business, but um, I look at it and I say, look, SummerSlam 92, if you look at his buy rate, it was severely disappointing. Um, the blame was put on it being in the United Kingdom. The blame was put on it airing in the United States on tape delay. Um, and the results had got out in advance. That's uh -huh. what, the blame, that was what the blame was put on. But the reality is, if you look at the card, it was the first card post Hulk Hogan. So it was the first pay-per-view without Hulk Hogan on. Um, so if you're trying to base it on reality a little bit more, the reason why it didn't do well was probably because 
he was the first one without Hulk Hogan. Okay, um, and I feel that um, WWF at the time didn't want to admit that because you don't want to say, "Look, our business is doomed because we haven't we've lost our number one star to the movies." Right, so it's it's much easier to scapegoat it on it being in the United Kingdom and being on tape delay. Um, that's my belief, anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel that um, I, I also get why they haven't done that. Um, I feel I feel that um, you know because it, it's not ideal, but I do feel like in a modern world, definitely WWE have missed a trick on the UK. I think that if the UK could make TNA's product look hot for so many years, um, then God knows what it would have done to WWE's product. <laughs> um, so yeah, I do. I do think they've missed the boat. Um, and I look at again. I think they've missed the boat without without having a, a major UK star as well. I think maybe you know they're trying to get there with Drew Galloway right now, and it's a shame that um, uh, he's not had a chance to do it in front of fans. Um, but you know, I feel they've missed a boat with not having a big UK star as well, because I just look at Anthony Joshua in the boxing sphere. Um, and Anthony Joshua alone is enough to sell out Wembley Stadium multiple times a year. Fighting, you know, fighting nobodies, realistically. Mm-hmm. You know, like, when I say nobodies, I'm sure they're, you know, they've got talent, but they're not household names. They're not, it's not like, I want to see Anthony Joshua versus X. You know, the only fights that I feel like, you know, we want to see Anthony Joshua would sell tickets based on the fight rather than Anthony Joshua fighting is Anthony Joshua versus Deontay Wilder and Anthony Joshua versus Tyson Fury. I mean, to a lesser extent, you might look at Dillian White, you might look at, um, you know, the match with Andy Ruiz, which was storyline based around him losing the championship. But the reality is Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder are the only two name matches that would sell tickets, right? People just want to watch Anthony Joshua box. So, to me, if you put, you take that mentality and you say WWE are working in an environment where they can manufacture the stars, they can manufacture who wins and loses, they could have their own great British hope and they could be filling stadiums you know, at least once or twice a year, you know? And uh, I think that, you know, there's definitely been a ball missed on in that respect. But I also say, if you look at WWE, look at the business they do, you know, they're the least popular they've ever been, but they're making the most money they've ever made. So it depends what your gauge on success is. You know, I've always been someone who's, um, I'd rather be more artistically satisfied. And I would hope that being artistically satisfied will in turn lead on to, to being financially satisfied. Um, but, um, you know, I think that you can't argue with WWE's success. You know, you can't argue with, the dollars in the bank at the end of the day. Um, and and if that's what your, your gauge of success is, then look, they've probably done nothing wrong at all because, you know, whilst the, the gate revenue for a show in the UK and the UK popularity may go through the roof, at the end of the day, they've just sold their, their network for God knows how much money in the US. They've just signed their biggest TV deals they've ever had, despite every single trend they have going down. Yeah. So, um it, it, like I say, it depends what way you look at it. I'm not sitting here knocking WWE in any way, shape, or form. Um, you know, they. I mean, if I had their money, I'd I'd probably be doing things the same way. That's that's what works. But I do always say, you're making all that money, and all that money's guaranteed. So what is the harm in trying to put on a good product as well as that? So yeah, you know, yeah. But that's that's as easy as it is. So, 
um, you're watching this stuff. What what age did you sort of think that wrestling was something that you could possibly do, or did um, you want to be a wrestler at one point, or did you? Well, I think anyone growing up watching wrestling wanted to be a wrestler at some point. But for me, you know, it was something that was left in my childhood. By the time I was a teenager, I didn't want to be a professional wrestler. Do you know what I mean? I wanted to be a, I wanted to be a professional wrestler in the same way my son right now wants to be Spider-Man, you know, my mm-hmm. two-year-old son, you know. So, um, you know, I can't say I never wanted to be a wrestler, but it wasn't something whereby, you know, I when I was of high school age where I was like, you know, my career path's professional wrestler, my career path's professional wrestling. You know, for me, mm-hmm. I've always been a fan. I've always wanted to be involved. Um, to me, a dream job would be being paid to be a wrestling fan. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, and I'm not really sure I ever had any visions of working in professional wrestling. Uh, I guess theatre has always been a love of mine and I guess yeah, alongside wrestling. Um, and I guess the two things kind of go hand in hand. Um, but I think... For me, it was really a case of um, more about um, timing, knowing I wanted to be involved. And when I say wanted to be involved, I just wanted to be there. You know, I just wanted to be close to wrestling all the time. So it wasn't like, you know, I want to be a booker. I want to be a referee. I want to be a wrestler. I just wanted to be around wrestling. I wanted to be around wrestling shows. I wanted to see as many shows as possible. I wanted to meet as many of the wrestlers as possible. Um, I, and I just wanted to be in the crowd and, and feel the atmosphere and energy. So it kind of all just fell into place, really. Um, you know, it, you, when you're when you've got when you're so tunnel vision and so passionate um, about one thing, um, then I think the universe works in weird and mysterious ways to to get you to that place, and I guess that's what happened with me. Okay, um, when did you become aware that of the role of a booker, and was that something that interested you at first, or we, what was your first thought when you learned what a booker was? Um, I don't think I ever really, really under. I knew what a booker was. I don't think I really ever understood the role of a booker until probably um, 16, around the age of 16, when the shoot interviews started becoming popular. Um, mm-hmm. So the shoot interviews essentially were like podcasts. Um, you know, a, a wrestler would sit in front of a video camera for three, four, sometimes eight hours. If it was a double, <laughs> a double tape, they'd essentially sit in front of a video camera and, uh, and, discuss professional wrestling and I remember the ones that I was most fascinated or the one that I was most fascinated by was the Jim Cornette's ones um because he would go into a lot more detail about the booking of professional wrestling um you know he'd have his book of finishes or you know where he'd have the finishes of the matches written down the the gate they did um the opponent whatever um Mm -hmm. I think that those early Jim Cornette shoot interviews were probably the start of me becoming in the least bit interested in the booking side of things. Um, I mean, like I said to you, I had a love of theatre always. And I think when I started refereeing, I started to, um, it's kind of all amalgamated together. Um, but when I started refereeing, I, I suddenly started to, to gain a deeper understanding, um, which is why I feel that everyone should try and, and do as many different roles within wrestling as possible. Um, and, and not feel that, you know, oh, I'm here to train to be a wrestler. I don't want to be a referee. That's beneath me. I don't want to be a cameraman. That's beneath me. You know, I don't mm-hmm. want to, whatever. I feel like every single role is important. 
Um, even playing the music is important from a timing perspective. When do you hit play? You know, when do you fade the music down? You know, um, if you can if you can really look at stuff analytically, I think that you can gain so much out of all these different roles. But it was as a, as a referee, I was you know starting to to learn how the speed of my count could uh, impact an audience's reaction. You know, um, back in the day, and still a lot today, being a referee uh, in British wrestling, you know, there, there was um there was very few actual pr proper referees. There were a lot of trainees who were just given a referee shirt and the referee was an afterthought, afterthought to the, you know, the whole thing. So there's very people, few people who were just referees. So I was lucky that I was able to get good at being just a referee very quickly. Um, and then that led to me going all around the country, all around Europe, and then eventually the world, just being a referee. Um, and I, and I feel that having that role as a referee, um, it meant many times I'd be the only referee. So I'd get to see, you know, a, a full card, you know, so I'd get to see how the fans react in an opener versus how they react in a main event. You know, I'd be able to tell you where there was a lull in the crowd, in the show. I'd be able to tell you where guys went wrong. I'd be able to tell you stylistically who would work well with each other. I'd start to, um, you know, I'd start to see, you know, working, especially working some of the smaller shows up and down the country, you'd start to see breakout talents who weren't being utilised correctly in other promotions. And I'd be always almost fantasy booking, saying this guy would work well with this guy, this guy would work well with that guy. Um, and I think it kind of all just, um, I don't know, like I say, it, just, it was a natural evolution. You know, that interest in the booking side of things peaked when that interest in the booking side of things peaked, I started to get more of an awareness about my role as a referee, the role of a crowd, the role of matches on a show. And then I just kind of invested a lot more time studying, learning um, and, uh, and watching wrestling for a different reason. Um, so I always say to the, the, you know, the guys and girls at Portland School of Wrestling that if you, um, if you watch a wrestling match, you can watch the same wrestling match a hundred times and watch it for a hundred different things. Um, and that's kind of where I learned that because for example you could be watching it for the false finishes you could be watching it for the heat you could be watching it to watch how a babyface sells you could be watching it for a babyface's fire um you know you could be watching for how the wrestlers respond to the crowd you could be watching it for pacing you could be watching it for match structure there's so many different ways you can watch the same professional wrestling match um if you're studying and analyzing um and gauging responses and i think that that all happened to me around the same time so was the referee the first thing you did when you went or when you uh participated in wrestling apart yeah, from going as a fan yeah so I, I obviously um i didn't even know um that um i could i didn't even know that british wrestling was a thing let alone that i could be a part of british wrestling um and i there was shows going around the country, uh, you know, on a regular basis, a full-time circuit going. And I, I found out about it via a local newspaper ad. Um, so I started going to watch my local shows. And in those, uh, in those shows, they uh, used to get the programme and it used to have... So you'd only really... So the internet wasn't a thing. So you'd only mm -hmm. have a... Um, you'd only have, like, your local lit paper and local posters. You'd only know about what was going on. Um, but on in the programs, they used to put a list of the, the different shows. So you'd have like, for example, I was South End, but then you'd have like 
Basildon, Barking, you know, like Dagenham, like close, they'd be listed on the thing. Um, and I think the first one I went to outside of um, outside of Southend would have been Barking, probably, um, which was about half an hour train ride. But um, but I guess I I would go to the UK shows. I'd talk to the wrestlers after. Probably just be quite a nuisance after, but the wrestlers probably uh, appreciated the attention um, because they by, were by no means WWE superstars. Um, but I just loved it, you know, and I even though I knew, like, do you know what I mean? I knew it wasn't the real thing, you know. I, mm-hmm. knew, it, like, I remember, like, there was one show. So I went to a few with my mum, um, a couple with my dad, um, and I then went to a... Uh, they started putting shows on in my local leisure centre. The first one I managed to convince like 10 mates to go. We had the entire front row, me and my mates. The second time there was four of us. Then the third time there was supposed to be three of us and it wound up being just me. <laughs> um, so that's, you know, that gives you an idea of what the wrestling was like. You know, it wasn't, um, it wasn't, it, it wasn't, in, and, and, and there were lots of reasons as well, you know, like they do like G's for future matches. And then when they'd come back, it'd just be a completely different lineup. Um, yeah. They wouldn't follow through with what they promised um, and all kinds of stuff like that. Um, but um, I, and then, you know, there was no production. The rings were rickety. Um, I always fondly recall a story of, I, I watched a show at the um, Empire, New Empire Theatre in South End. I watched a show and uh, they, they actually were like, we're going to become regularly once a month to New Empire Theatre in South End. This is after they'd done a few different venues around town. Um, I'm not sure if it was the same promotion, but I assume it was. Or um, but they uh, used to put a ring on a. Uh, it was a rickety ring they had on the on a stage, and every time someone hit the rope, she was scared that a the ring was going to collapse, and b it was going <laughs> to slide off the stage. Um, and I remember the main event um, was a rumble, and you had Blondie Barrett come in, and the, you know he got eliminated, and he came back a bit later, and he attacked everyone with a plastic, coat. or maybe it was the wooden a wooden coat hanger he attacked everyone with a coat hanger and won the rumble to set up a rematch uh, you know um or and you know you look at something like that it was ridiculous right? and i remember I, I did the i did a week on the camps with blondie barrett and i told him all about it and he got mm-hmm. the other kick out of it but it still sticks with me to this day you know um but like stuff like that and i remember seeing stuff like that and being like you know like I love British wrestling and I still had a good, don't get me wrong. I'm not sit, sit, sat here knocking it. I had a great time. I'd go there, I'd shout, you know, I'd, the next day I'd have no voice. Um, it was a real buzz for me being there, even though, you know, we talk about sus- suspending your disbelief to enjoy professional wrestling. I had to suspend my disbelief one step further to pretend that I was in the middle of Madison Square Garden and I was watching the <laughs> chiseled WWE superstars, you know. Um, but um you know, and there, but there were like, you know, like a very young Jodie Fleisch and a very young Johnny Storm, a very young Doug Williams, you know, guys like that did did appear and pique your interest, you know. Um, so, uh, but then like uh, the internet started to become a bit more of a thing. Um, as the internet became more of a thing, I started to travel to more shows and I'd make friends with people, um, you know, who at the shows and we'd stay in touch via MSN Messenger, Um and one of those friends was a guy called Dan Ambrose, who was based in Chelmsford, um, Essex, which is about 45 minutes from Southend by a train. Um, so um, and we used to you'd get the train from Liverpool Street and I guess about half an hour into the train ride, he'd jump off and get the train to, from, from 
I think it's Shenfield to Chelmsford maybe. Um, and I'd stay on the train and head all the way down to South End. Um, and anyway, um, Dan introduced me to a promotion called the FWA. Um, mm-hmm. Dan and a guy called Adam Mumford as well, who he, he wound up running a promotion called Revolution British Wrestling, which I, I say is a predecessor for LDN wrestling, really, in terms of the type of shows they run. Um, but, um, the, you know, Dan and, and Adam introduced me to FWA, um, and it was like nothing I'd ever seen before. It was, uh, they had production values, they had an entranceway, they, they had their own little TV deal on a Portsmouth TV station called My MyTV, um, which they used to sell videotapes of. Um, none of this stuff holds up at all to this day, by the way. But like, uh, <laughs> you know, but to me, like someone who had and and to be honest, probably the stuff that I was going to watch in the normal halls was probably um, was probably a better quality than the FWA stuff. But FWA had the production, they had the bright lights, they had the storylines, they had the wrestlers that were taking it seriously. Um, when I got into it, there was like a new school versus old school rivalry going on, um, uh, which had Robbie Brookside and Drew McDonald against you know the new school upstarts of like Alex Shane and Alex Shane had just took he wound up turning babyface you know it's a long story right but But you remember the story I remember the story and it was and it was a story that's I think that's the key it was a story and that's something I'd never experienced before in, in in British wrestling and they also had um a training school attached to the um to the promotion and the trainees all used to sit front row. And I imagine some of the shows, you know, there's probably more trainees than actual fans, but um, there was, the trainees used to sit front row and they used to make a lot of noise, you know, and the chant was FWA, FWA, like, you know, like the EC dub chants, you know, and, um, and each wrestler had their own gimmick and their own unique character without being a WWE ripoff. Um, and they all had their own chants and the crowd was so enthusiastic to them. And there was an energy being transmitted from those trainees through to the uh, the rest of the crowd, which just made it so much more infectious. And all of a sudden, you know, someone like myself would learn all the chants that the trainees were doing. And then I would help, you know, with the chants, which would make the person next to me get involved, you know. And it was, a uh, yeah, that kind of infectious uh, stuff, you know. It was real good. And anyway, um, FWA also had a training so. Those trainees were the trainees from their London training school, but they also had a training school in Portsmouth. And as a part of that, they used to do training camp weekends. That's where Drew McIntyre came through. Um, Pac did some of those training weekends. PJ Black, um, of course, Justin Gabriel came through there. Um, All all kinds of guys came through those those doors um, in Portsmouth. But then they did a referee training seminar. Um, And my friend Dan, who I'd obviously met at these shows and became friends with through MSN Messenger, the UK fan forum, um as well um he he'd actually done one of these weekend camps and i think he'd shown a lot of promise with another person who became a close friend of mine max voltage um they they became friends via the training camp so max became my portsmouth friend um and anyway they did a um and i think his brother his brother came to uni down here so i remember we we went to a show in portsmouth and stayed over at his brother's house um but Dan had shown a lot of promise in terms of being a, a trainee. Um, and he uh, did a couple of camps, but then one camp he hurt his knee. So he was unable to wrestle. Um, 
and there was a referee track training camp coming up and he was going to give refereeing a go because obviously he couldn't wrestle anymore, but he still loved wrestling. Um, and he said to me, being his show buddy and train buddy as well, do I want to come along to the train to the referee training? And, and, and I did. And they picked a, the best two people at the end of it to become referees on the next show. And they picked me and Dan. And we became referees <laughs> on, the, on the FWA Academy shows. And it just kind of all spiralled from there. Awesome. And how long were you a referee for? Mm, I don't really know the answer to that one. I guess I, I kind of... I, I, I don't know when I officially refereed my life my last matches i think i'm probably still available for hire for international <laughs> tours um only sunshine places um, yep. but um but yeah i god knows i was probably a referee for i'm gonna say about three four years before i started booking with ipw okay. uh, but then like i spike and i i continued to referee and i'd say i was probably a referee <coughs> Uh, maybe I stopped maybe I stopped refereeing regularly around 2009-2010 but I still was doing the NWE tours around that time mm-hmm. um, and it was probably around 2012 I stopped refereeing altogether um, I've done a couple of jobs since then I've done coincidentally with Max Voltage who we spoke about I've done some of the uh, he does uh, the wrestling shows at the edinburgh fringe festival yeah um, i've done a couple of those i think the last one was maybe three years ago i did one of those um so yeah it's getting longer and longer between matches but you know i still stay in shape because i never know when my next match <laughs> is gonna be nice and so you sort of fell into that and you sort of fell into booking as well didn't you yeah so uh with the booking so Again, I wound up. Um, I wound up in Portsmouth. I went to university in Portsmouth. Um, some people would say that it's because I was following this wrestling dream to Portsmouth, um, given that the FWA Academy were there. There's a partial truth in that. I put Portsmouth down on my UCAS application form because I knew it from wrestling. Mm-hmm. Um, FWA always used to do a show called No Surprises at the Pyramid Centre in the summer, um, and anyone who's ever been to Portsmouth in the summer. It's just the most beautiful place if you go to the right places. So if you go to, there's parts of Portsmouth, like any town, there's horrible, horrible places. But, um, you know, if you go to the seafront and the South Sea in the summer, it's just a wonderful place to be. And as I mentioned, Dan, my little buddy, his, his brother was at uni here. So we'd stay at his house. We stayed at his house and, you know, had a couple of days in Portsmouth around one of the No Surprises shows. No Surprises, I want to say No Surprises free um, may have been the show. Um, and then after that point, I always stayed at Max's house. But anyway, I grew an affinity with Portsmouth because then, you know, after the shows, we'd go out in Portsmouth and, you know, whatever. So because I knew at Portsmouth, I put it down on my UCAS application. It just so happened that I had to get the highest grades to get into Portsmouth Uni than I did at any of the other unis that I put down on the form. <laughs> so obviously, you put down the place where you got to get the highest grades as your first choice. And you put down some lower grades as your second choice. Or at least that's what I th- think would be a logical thing to do, right? So that's that's what I did. Um, and it just so happened I got high enough grades to come to Portsmouth. So um, 
I don't remember what the question was, but that's how I wound up in Portsmouth. Um, oh, okay, yeah. So the question, so then, and how I got into booking. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so I found myself at Portsmouth Uni, and I was refereeing, obviously on the reg, um, and then. Um, Dan Edler, the guy who ran IPW, he was also at Portsmouth Uni in the year above me. Um, and he had started, I can't remember if he'd started IPW before I knew him or after, because I was on board IPW from the second show, or maybe, no, the third show. I was on, on board IPW from the third show, um, which was Return of the Dragon, um, not just as a referee. Um, mm -hmm. I started booking and I kind of I advised some of the booking I started booking the shows after which was the weekend of champion shows um, a guy called Fozzy Andy Maddock he's a good guy he was who I met again these, these my names mean nothing to you people I'm sure but I met Fozzy um, we went to a show in Acton um, an FWA show um, Lights Camera Acton it was called it had Chris Lintz <laughs> direct off of uh, Tough Enough on the show it was an FWA show Mm -hmm. We went to the train station um, and um, and Fozzie was one of the trainees, FWA trainees, and he was at the train station with us. And basically it had this thing going over and over again, this this thing saying the trains are delayed. And of course, in those days, you, you never had your phones. So you couldn't check. You never had like mobile phones. Well, yeah, I think there were probably mobile phones, but like there wasn't the internet. Do you know what I mean? There wasn't no, the internet. Yeah. Text You'd have snake on the phone. phone. Yeah, so um, we um, we were at Acton, and you'd print out your train times before you went, and you'd also print out from street maps the directions from a train station to the venue, um, and you'd just follow the, the directions best you could and hope they were right. <laughs> uh, and, of course, it'd be in British wrestling, all these places. I think Acton was all right because it was Acton Town Hall, but, like, most places were, like, you know, this random community centre in the middle of nowhere, which no one even knows a community centre exists. Yeah. Um, so... Um, you couldn't even be like, oh, excuse me, do you know where this community centre is? Like, what? You know, so you had to rely on these street map printouts. And anyway, um, I I went to a, uh, we, we, we went to a train station after this Acton show, um, and there's an announcement being let out over the, the tannoy over and over again saying, the train's delayed, the train's delayed, the train's delayed, the train into Liverpool Street. And then basically, it then said, um, the train's, uh, train's cancelled. Now, Acton, there's two train stations. I think Acton East and Acton West, maybe. I, I, don't, I know there's two train stations. And basically, a guard was there, and he just advised us, get to the other train station. And he's like, you've got however many minutes to get there, right, before the last train to Liverpool Street, basically. And we sprinted to the train station to get to... And by this point, I was pretty much screwed because mm -hmm. I had to get back to South End from Liverpool Street. Um so and i was probably 17 at the time right um and i sprinted we sprinted to the train station oh i, I want to say we either sprinted or we got a night bus i can't remember but we got to this train station and we just missed the train as we got to the train station we just missed the train uh -huh. right so we were walking through the streets of london um and and i that's where i first met fozzy who was the original ipw booker um and and i don't don't I've got no idea how he became a booker, but, um, but you know, he booked the first, well, two and a half shows, I guess. Um, and, 
Um, so yeah, so I met him on that trip, and he. Uh, so that's a loose link, I guess. But that was where I first I saw my first mug in that night. Um, right. You know, thanks to British wrestling, like the first time I'd ever seen anyone be mugged. I was sat on a night bus. I looked out and saw someone being mugged on the street. Horrible, horrible. Um, but you know, British wrestling toughened me up, and um, <laughs> and that was also where I met uh, Jack Saunders for the first time. And Jack Saunders is a guy who's still around to this day. He's um, he works a, as a nurse actually, uh, but he does a lot of production stuff. So he does a lot of production stuff for Progress, um, and he did some of the entrance ways for some of the earlier York Hall shows. Um, okay. So, you know, I met him, Tall Jack. Um, I met him that night as well, and he's he was actually. Um, he was our saviour on that night. We were on the, we were just on the night bus. We just literally getting on night buses just to try and stay in places because it was like a Jack, Fozzie, myself, and Dan, and um, and he wound up getting his mum to pick us up from Stratford train station, come and picked us up and let us stay at her house overnight. Um, and then I got the train back the next morning, so I survived to tell the tale. Um, <laughs> but I think like just retelling these stories is just amazing. The amount of people that are still about, um, you know, who who i met in those early early days you know it's uh, there's been a longevity to some of those people um and you know who've really eaten shit so to speak as well because it was horrible it was unthankful it's nothing like it is today i mean you know like you can look at it today and be like oh it's tough but i can guarantee i don't sound like one of these people but like it's nothing like it used to be i guarantee like, <laughs> it's, it's insane the level of, of difference and it's not no excuse for no one should have a bad time but like um, you know, it's just a, it's just another world. Um, but anyway, um, yeah. But that's I, how you learn, and then you can make it better for the next generation. Yeah, yeah. And, that's, yeah. and that's what I've always tried to do. That's literally yeah. what yeah. I've always tried to do to make a more welcoming environment. And that's something that we, you know, instilled in all our locker rooms. Um, mm -hmm. I'd agree with that. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, that's just the way it's kind of been. But I guess I got into the booking side of things. I used to, um, in exchange for free tickets to the shows I refereed on. Um, so the FWA shows predominantly, um, Dan would drive me from Portsmouth. So FWA would not have to pay me any expenses to get to the show. Um, Dan, who was going to go to the shows anyway, um, got, uh, got a ticket to the shows. Um, so he was not paying for his ticket, um, you know, and, and that's, that's kind of how I got to the show, like to and from those FWA shows when I was in Portsmouth. Um, and then in the car journeys, and it was mainly coming back from the shows. I think a lot of the times I'd be driven, I'd come down with um, with Andy Simmons, um, but he lived in Liss, which was a, which is about maybe half hour drive from Portsmouth. And coming back at night, he'd never want to, he'd never want to drive to Portsmouth and then back, so, you know, add an hour onto his journey. So you know, so you'd almost be stranded in Liss. He'd let you sleep in his house, but then he wouldn't even drive you to the train station the next morning. Um, selfish. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I was actually telling him the other day about a time when myself and James Ty stayed. He refused point blank to drive us back and James had to get back for work the next morning. Um, <laughs> and he refused to drive us to the train station. So it was me and James Ty and he lives up this um, big hill um, and... Uh, me and James Ty had to walk down this hill. Um, like it's a woodland kind of area, but like in the pitch, with no street lights, pitch black <laughs> in like early hours of the morning with James cursing him every step of the way. I was just happy to be there. Do you know what I mean? I was just, a, I, was just happy, I was in the still happy to be involved phase. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but he, he, 
well, he was tucked up in his nice warm bed. You know, just a, at least a lift to the train station would have been nice. But um, <laughs> yeah, he says he has no recollection of that moment. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, I digress again. But um, so Dan used to drive me home a lot. And on the, those trips home, we'd talk a lot of booking. And a lot of the booking we'd talk about was really based around those shoot interviews. You know? okay. And it's like, here's how I'd book this. Here's how I'd book that. But anyway, in the lead up to the third show, the Return of the Dragon show, Dan already asked me to referee. Um, and then um, Fozzie, Andy Maddock, he's kind of, um, I don't know if he fell out with Dan or if he decided he wanted to take a step back from the booking. But basically a few weeks before the show, um, Dan said to me, listen, uh, Fozzie doesn't want to do it anymore. Um, can you step in and do it? Um, and I was like, yeah, sure. Right. And, and it was always I, I don't sit here and take 100 percent credit for it because he would book the wrestlers and then just be like, give me ideas or like, here's a match I want to do. Book the rest around it or book a storyline around it or whatever. Um, and um, so I was, you know, started mapping some stuff out from that Return of a Dragon show. Then we got to Return of a Dragon on the day of the show and Fozzie was there. So like it was almost like I was like, oh, here's my new role of Booker. And then Fozzie was there. So like we kind of shared responsibility on that show. And then it was from the next uh, the next shows where it was me. Um, and from that point forward, I'd, I would book it. Um, it was always um, it was always sp spitballing sessions with Dan. It's important to have people to bounce ideas off, I think, um, you know, and um, and yeah. And back in those days, that's how it used to work. We used to go to our local weather swing. like the world was different in those days right you'd go to you'd go to like a uh, before you'd go out on night out like people used to actually just go to pubs for social drinking you know um mm -hmm. and we would just go and have a couple of drinks and spitball ideas back and forth and creative juices would be flowing and you know and, and that's sometimes when i was most creative was sat in that local weather weather spoons isambard kingdom brunel on guildhall walk um <laughs> some of my most uh creative moments came um but yeah that's that's it really and then kind of you know from there it was just a case of it's a long story but you know as, as things progressed I kind of took more control um we lost our regular venue Dan took a step back we had a falling out along the way um which resulted in IPW doing some of their worst business possible um for a few shows before I came and pulled it all back um we lost the the main venue um that we were running um and then the transition period was always very difficult then we lost mm -hmm. the next venue we were running in due to norm numerous circumstances one being the wrestlers not looking after the venue the way they should which was another val valuable lesson that i've learned and taken with me to to my life now um you know um the venues would just be left a state you know and, and people wouldn't think twice about making the venues a state leaving the venues a state but then they started thinking twice when we lost that venue and they lost all that work you know um then after and like it was always dan's dad's money really that was invested but it was like a business like dan's dad was the investor but every decision had to be justified to him um mm -hmm. and the shows had to, had to be successful um so after every show we'd have to sit down with his dad and go for everything and i was responsible for some of it because like obviously I'd be spending someone else's money. Yeah. Um, and then I think really we grew strained more. So there was one instant where we, we fell out completely for a couple of shows. Okay. I missed a, a show. The next show was canceled because of poor ticket sales. They made another excuse. There was never any poor ticket sales when I was booking it. <laughs> um, 
but then the next show was um uh and then the next show i came back as a referee um and i said i'd referee but i won't book because i felt very disrespected um at the time it's a long time ago you know um yeah. and uh and anyway i then went off and tried other things out Losing the venue, Orpington Halls brought us kind of back together in the sense that Dan was literally on the out-out. Um, and I got Len Davis, I don't know how much these names mean to people, but I got Len Davis who runs, who ran real quality wrestling, the promotion that ran York Hall. Um, he was an unsuccessful promoter, but a very successful production guy. So when I say unsuccessful promoter, his shows didn't draw. He had York Hall with like maybe 50 people, you know, like... Um, there was a belief that York Hall couldn't draw as a professional wrestling venue before I took it over because of the legacy of RQW. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, uh, I, uh, again, without going into his story, it's a whole nother, whole nother chapter of the story, so to speak. But um, he wasn't making any money running shows, but he was doing great production. Um, we had terrible production. Um, or IPW had terrible production. I was working with Len. I'd kind of come in to assist with the booking. Um, I could see it was almost like hitting a brick head against a wall, like in terms of it just wasn't, it just wasn't working. The, the name, RQ, and, and it wasn't what Len wanted RQW to be either. And he was also working with the Knights in WAW. So I pitched to Len, what if I pitched to Dan? We have IPW as like a, one of the arms of RQW and we have... Um, WAW as one of the arms of RQW because that's essentially what um, w RQW was to WAW anyway. You know, they filmed their shows, they did the music, they did the production at the shows. So essentially, I was able to kind of broker that deal. And Len was originally going to be financially involved. Um, and when that happened, it lessened the financial risk because it was going to be 50 50 between IPW and Len. Um, but I said to Dan that I would go in financially with him. Um, so it would essentially be 25, 25, 50. So the financial burden wasn't as high. Um, but then it came to the first show and it looked like I'd hustled Len um, <laughs> because the show itself, um, I can't remember. I want to say Eugene was on the show, but like the pre-sale was ridiculous. It was like maybe like 20 tickets or something. It was going to be a disaster. It might have been a bit more. Mm -hmm. It looked like it was going to be a disaster. And I said to Len at the time, listen, like, I know you can't afford to lose any. And I said to Dan, like, look, it's not fair on Len. Do you know what I mean? Doing this. Mm -hmm. I said to, to, and he agreed. So basically I said to Len, listen, do you want to still provide the production? You get the footage for whatever you need it for. It's going to cost you a lot less to provide the production than it is to go in halves on a show that loses money. And, I'd, and I presented him with the, these are the ticket sales so far. And I could give you the exact breakdown because I keep all my emails. So, like, oh, wow. uh, you know, so I've got documentation of all of this stuff. Um, and basically, Len was like, no, no, we'll, um, he said, yeah, that's a good idea. You know, I don't, obviously, he didn't want to lose money. So that's the way we did it. He just provided the production and whatever. But then, as it turned out on the show, like maybe 250 people turned up and bought tickets on the door. <laughs> um, so it looked like we'd hustled Len or it looked like I'd hustled Len. So <laughs> um, that, you know, that wasn't my intention. That wasn't ha what happened in the slightest. Mm. Uh, but, you know, we always kept a, a good relationship, myself and Len anyway. But um, that's, you know, that's just a story of when we went there. Um, we lost that venue. And when we lost that venue, um, I, you know, in, throughout that time, I was getting more disillusioned with Dan. He was running um, 
he was running a training school at this point and then wanted to put as many trainees on the shows as possible um, because it saved money um, and also was an advert for the training school. So, you know, you know, like you put a trainee, you put, you put a trainee on the show. Uh, I don't know what he was paying him. He might not have been paying him at all. I can't, I, I can't tell you one way or the other, but certainly a lot less than someone who, you know, was a, a seasoned pro. And then the trainees would see that trainee on the show on the main show. Then as a result, that would lead to an increased attendance in the training school. Yeah. That was business. Um, and I didn't like that way of doing things. And essentially it got to a point whereby it was, I put my, I either go my own way and put my money where its mouth is, or I can't complain, you know? So I went my own way. I put my money where its mouth was, um, but I still stayed as IPW. There's another sub, sub story here, um, but I, which again, it's a too long a story to go into, but um, but essentially there was a point where I had the option of crossroads whether to rebrand my shows or keep them as IPW. I decided to, and it was all down to, the print was very different in those days. Um, and I, I was running like a five-day tour and I'd made these programs and you had to get like 2,000 done at a time, right? <laughs> so I got a box yep. of 2,000 flies. And it was very, uh, po- brochures, right? And it, at the time it was very expensive to do as well. And especially mm-hmm. for what I had no money, you know, so like it was a big investment for me to buy these uh, programs. Um, and it was actually of a guy, Tony Sefton, who had, uh, uh, or Tony Simpson, who later relaunched FWA 2.0. Um, and I remember sitting down with him and saying, listen, now's the time. If you want to leave IPW, now's the time to rebrand. But once I press print on these brochures, I'm committed until I've sold at least 1500 brochures do you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and he was like no he was convinced that we had to have the ipw brand he promotes two shows later then calls me and is like andy we need to rebrand we need to get away from that he's ruining it you know and i was like tony it's too late mate i told you you had your chance and that's where fwa 2.0 was born he had this conversation with alex shane and he he started fwa 2.0 right mm-hmm. so that's kind of how it all happened um i wound up from that point i was on my own promoting shows every now and again dan would get interest in coming back and running the shows he he had no say whatsoever in the booking in the the venues or anything like that um but every now and again he'd come back and run a show um normally coincided with a time of myself getting a bit of buzz for the promotion um to make it i guess easier for him to to use the name to sell tickets maybe (laughs) um that's what a cynic might say um and then um and then basically we just reached a crossroads whereby i think we've both just had enough like he wanted me to be subservient to him i would i'd run the business without him for all this time and i'd established my own company when i started promoting shows on my own um as a full-time thing or well, i say a full-time thing but you know more regular than once every couple of months mm-hmm. um I set up my own company. So all my shows and all the contracts and everything were through my own company. So by all intents and purposes, you know, it was my company running. Everything I did was my company. It wasn't, it wasn't anything to do with IPW. It was just that name was attached to it. And we essentially reached a crossroads where I think Dan tried to call my bluff being a poker player saying, you know, like, um, uh, saying you couldn't afford to buy out the IPW name and I'm not interested in selling it. So you either essentially get back in line and, you know, 
put all my trainees on your shows and do what I want and or you can uh, go your own way. So I just went my own way. And it was as nice. simple as that. It was like one show, Summer Sizzler 2012, August 26, 2012. It was maybe two weeks before this, we'd had this conversation. Um, and it was all down to me using someone on a, on a camp show that he had had a drunk fight with, you know, great patterns of behavior there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and I was just like, come on. Do you know what I mean? Like, getting in drunk fights with talent is just ridiculous, mm. you know? Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's just one of those things, you know, the ta- like, I mean, he has a point in the sense that I probably shouldn't have booked that talent because that talent showed himself to be a liability in that respect, but also he was a problem just as much, you know? So yeah. um, I, I, I had the benefit, I had the belief that well, it's nothing to do with me. So, I do what I want. Do you know what I mean? It's my show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and anyway, he, he wound up working with that person again afterwards anyway, to show you, you know, what it was like. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I, I wound up being like, I want to book who I want to book. I want to run the shows how I want to run them. I don't want to be pulled down by, because I feel like every time he ran a show as well, I think it damaged the brand somewhat. Um, he'd advertise shows and not then cancel them because he wasn't selling tickets. Uh, enough tickets to him he'd run shows with trainees on um we always joke there's a swanley venue that we used to run where we used to run the main leisure center hall um and he couldn't sell tickets for that and like he wound up running regular shows there in what used to be the changing room which was essentially a squash court um and that was always a joke you know like the the, the running joke of you know like they're running shows in the changing room now um mm. so um that's kind of where i split and when I split from when I split from from IPW and, and just had Rev, Rev Pro, um, that's where everything changed for me. Really, it's where you know I took everything seriously. Um, I I enhanced our schedule. Um, it coincided with the training school opening. Um, you know, just everything grew from there. Um, so that's basically the establishment of RevPro as we know it today. Um, would you say that's your most triumphant moment in your career? Or if not, what would the most triumphant moment be? Well, I'd like to think I haven't had my most triumphant moment yet. Um, I mean, there's, you know, I, I look at the stuff I've achieved um, and I can signpost many moments where I've been proud. Um, you know, I feel like the first time I got to work with Bret Hart was a huge moment for me. Um, the first show we ran at York Hall was a huge moment for me. Um, then moving further ahead, um, being able to be at the Tokyo Dome as a, a guest of New Japan Pro Wrestling um, was huge for me. Then a couple of months later, being sat ringside at Madison Square Garden was huge. Running our first shows overseas in America was huge. Um, the respect, it was, it was interesting. I always said, I said at the time, the fans in America seem to have a greater appreciation for Rev Pro than the fans in the UK. Um, and I think that that's because they took it less for granted. I think they were looking from yeah. afar going, wow, they're so lucky to get these level of shows on such a consistent and regular basis. 
Whereas I think a lot of people in the UK took it for granted, um, which shows you how lucky we've been. Um, and I'd say really my, my moment at the moment, if I were to look at one moment where I'd be like, there you go, that's your crowning moment. It would be um, running the Copper Box show for New Japan Pro Wrestling. So it wasn't even a, um, it wasn't even a moment of, wow, Rev Pro. It wasn't even a moment of me getting appreciation for bringing together seven and a half thousand fans to the, the Copper Box Arena. It was just the work that went into that moment and then seeing it be put to reality. Um, and, you know, and I, when I say it, like, I, every single time, so, like, when I look at everything I've done um, and I look at the way I used to run shows, so I used to run shows in a little venue in Sittingbourne, um, which were the first, I, I want to say the first real high-level shows in this country, you know, the people that ran Progress used to attend those shows, um, you know, there were the top um wrestlers from around the country all kind of converged on one location um i think i was i'm gonna say i'm gonna take credit for being the first promoter to uh throw geography out the window so i always say um it's funny i've got a good example so i always say when i kind of got the mentality i always used to have this i always used to have this like, logic behind booking wrestling shows that you always used to have a, to have to have a down match before the main event because that's just years of bad habit wwe watching mm -hmm. um and when i worked some shows for ring of honor um i i realized ring of honor's formula was very different and they'd still have down matches but they would go home with two super strong matches so i'd have the semi main which would knock it out of the park and then the main would go even further right but the, but they'd both try to outshine each other which goes against anything you'd ever say in pro wrestling if you grew up on wwe pay-per-view mindset right and um and i was just like wow why not why am i booking down matches in my shows period why not just try to make every single match as good as it can possibly be mm -hmm. um now in the uk when you booked shows you always used to book via car so you used to bring it you used to bring in you know like you'd have your birmingham car your manchester car you know your london car whatever your, your cars may be um so um so you'd only have you, you know if you didn't fit into a car you wouldn't be on the show and as a result you might have people who would get into the show based on their geographical location rather than their ability um which is why you would then wind up um uh you know putting having some down matches or trying to hide people's weaknesses um but i just got that mindset of like i just want the best wrestling on my shows and i started charging a premium ticket price um which FWA were the first people to do that, but they only really did it for super shows. I was bold enough to say, look, front rows, 30 pounds, second rows, 25 pounds. So it might've been 25 and 20. Um, I did that regardless. And I would always say that those front row tickets are the difference. Those front two rows, people would say, why are you charging so much money? Um, but those two rows were the difference between getting an import or you know, bringing people on their own. I always use the example of Johnny Moss coming on his own from Cumbria to do shows. That would be absolutely unheard of back in the day. But obviously I wanted a high quality show and Johnny Moss was one of the best wrestlers in the country. And I'd bring him over down on his own from Cumbria um, to enhance the quality of my shows. Um, and that would always be my mindset. And uh, I, this week I watched the Chris Hero um, 
watch along of his match with Ishii from one of our events. Um, mm -hmm. And he made a point of saying that, you know, when he used to come over, he used to come over for two weeks at a time. Um, normally would be the ideal time for him. He'd do some seminars, he'd do some shows, split the flight with promoters. But many times when I brought him over, because I just wanted him on the show, because I felt that him being on the show would enhance the show so much, I would bring him over on his own just for that one show. So like there would be often times where he'd work on the Friday night, fly into England on the Saturday, uh, almost like, you know, Saturday morning he'd leave England or Saturday afternoon he'd leave America, sorry, fly into England on the Sunday, do the show, fly back on the Monday morning. Um, so that's like the to the extreme example of that mentality of, you know, I just want to put on the best professional wrestling shows. Was there a particular show that you felt like the booking stuff had clicked or would that be when you saw that Rev Pro, uh, sorry, the... Uh, Ring of Honor and you saw that matches could just be constantly up um, so I feel like the booking so for Rev Pro so so my booking of shows was for really with IPW was sitting like so my early stuff anything from the Orpington Halls mm -hmm. I consider to be real good booking from myself um, I feel like the next phase in Bromley um was decent it wasn't as good as it should have been but i still give it a lot of credit because um i feel we've done a very i think we've done a good job with guys like martin stone terry frazier mark haskins joel redman uh ricky hype um yestin reese and i feel like we've done a real good job around those guys um so i still think it was decent i don't think it was quite the level of the, the Orpington stuff before as i think it was very much they were a group called the thrillers uh, haskins redman Reese and Hyatt, with Gilligan Gordon as their manager. Um, and I think we've done a good job of bringing through a fresh act. Um, but I don't think my booking was as good then. Um, I feel like when we got to, the, as soon as we got to Sittingbourne, I think that's when we changed direction. Um, it was that higher quality approach, more of a sports-like approach. Um, and then I think when we turned to into Rev Pro, ironically, when we first turned to Rev, Rev Pro, um, there were a lot of there was a lot of resistance to Rev Pro being a thing, which amazed me because we were the same promotion running the same venue, the exact same crew of people running it, exact same production, exact same ring, exact same wrestlers, just a different name. Um, but there seemed to be that resistance against Rev Pro. And it wasn't really until I'd say maybe after our second York Hall show where things really started to go for us. Um, I think that it wasn't until the cockpit shows where I was able to start. Um, I, I think when I, before the cockpit and before the cockpit went monthly, I think I was more of a matchmaker rather than a booker. Okay. Um, because whilst we had storylines, there, there wasn't enough regularity to establish them. Mm -hmm. And I feel that it wasn't until I got to that, you know, knowing I've got a monthly venue. So whatever other shows we do in between, there's always going to be a monthly venue that we need to produce episodic professional wrestling for. It's knowing that I've had that, that's, um, that I think stuff's improved a lot. Um, and I genuinely think my best work has been the last, the whole last year um, before the pandemic, um, which was quietly done. I don't think people realised it. So obviously it crescendoed at high stakes at York Hall. Mm -hmm. uh, but 
it was a whole year's worth of work went into it. So I'm talking about the emergence of Michael Oku as a real threat and a real deal. Um, the introduction of Ricky Knight Jr., Robbie X, to add that depth to your division. Um, the, the slow emergence of the women's division as a, as a real genuine division on our shows. Um, it's kind of all those things all kind of coming together and coming to our head at that show. Um, and I think we'd never had depth quite like it at that time. Um, and I remember the shows in the lead up to that and the shows post that as well. We were just having, we were having shows with like, you know, the New Japan style tag matches with tag matches, which are setting up singles matches or singles matches turned into tag matches. And just everything seemed to mesh together nicely. And I had a clear plan of where we were going and a great set of, um, wrestlers and I was so excited about the future and obviously COVID smashed us in the face um, but I think low key that was the best in terms of putting you know getting putting pieces into place quietly without it seeming like a whole overhaul of a roster I think that was some of my best work um, I'm very very proud of the empty arena shows and the, the booking that's gone into those uh, um, the logistics uh, and the, the you know the just the logical storytelling we've we've put from um you know, from show to show, working with severe handicaps. Um, I'm very, very proud of that. Um, and I genuinely feel the best is yet to come. But I do feel as a as a booker who's comfortable, confident, um, and there were times before where I'd second-guess myself. There were times before when I would listen to talent. Um, and even though I had a gut instinct, I'd listen to the talent ahead of my gut. Um, but I severely regret, and that's, you know, as recently as um, summer, the last Summer Sizzler we did um, with the David Starr-Will Ospreay match, that's as recently as that, where I've listened to talent ahead of my gut and then been really annoyed with myself that I did. Um, but uh, I feel that now I, I'm kind of reassured and I, I just have that, that confidence in what I'm doing. And I'm, I think that the, the, obviously we're going to have limitations when we get back from this COVID, but I think my best is, is yet to come in terms of storytelling, in terms of working with talent, in terms of producing new talent, um, because I think that's the key. And it's, and there may be some growing pains. There always is when you introduce new talent. But if people mm -hmm. stick with us, I think it's going to be very rewarding, um, you know, what comes out the other end. Like, uh, let's put it this way. Like, I'm 100% confident that the show's quality will be high enough. And that in a year's time, like one year after we've, you know, one year after we're back running shows, we're going to be as strong, if not stronger than we've ever been. It may be a brief period of rebuilding, but I think that we we have benefits of, you know, being able to have kept stuff going throughout lockdown by the skin of our teeth and by being able to um, learn a lot of lessons throughout lockdown as well. Um, so I'm excited for the future and I, ge I genuinely believe that, you know, if you talk about best periods, I, I, I always say I answered a question on Q&A today about, um, you know, best uh, your favorite Rev Pro show or whatever, but I still always believe my favorite is yet to come because I think <laughs> I can look back on stuff, always look back. 
I'm sure people can relate. You look back with the benefit of hindsight mm. um, and it's cringeworthy to watch old stuff back. And I, I look back at old Rev Pro shows and whilst there's so many great moments and so many memorable matches, there's stuff about those shows where I cringe and I feel like if only I knew then what I knew now. Um, but I appreciate that's part of the process because that's the only way you can learn. You can only learn from your mistakes and, you know, and you can only learn from your successes, but something has to come first. So, you know, that's, that's it. And I feel like I've, I've been doing this, I guess I've been going maybe 18 years now, maybe. Um, and as a result of that, I feel more assured than I've ever been um, that, I, that I know what I'm doing, you know, um, and I've learned all my lessons from the past and we're going to amalgamate all those together to create a very exciting product. So um, I've had the privilege of like being around you at York Hall and seeing the amount of work that goes into just getting that show going. Mm. Um, so I want to know, is there anything when you became a booker and started running shows that sort of not threw you off guard, but you were surprised that you had to do because you do pretty much everything, don't you? For like, I'm just taking the York Hall for example because that's yeah. probably your most famous venue. But like, everything is done by you, pretty much, isn't it? Yeah, I and and it's less so now than it was before. Mm. Um, so to put that into perspective for you, the first York Hall shows, it was that we were doing it even more just me and and me and myself and Chris Roberts very often mm. that we get there at super early and yeah but it, yeah every aspect of it um now all i'd say is again it comes down to that being well-rounded and you know like i spoke about the beginning i've way the reason i feel it's important to do as many different jobs as possible because mm. look british wrestling isn't a big thing right it's a very niche it's a niche of a niche right which makes it extremely difficult to prosper in so if you're going to prosper you have to be a little bit resourceful it's going to necessitate doing a lot of jobs yourself. It's going to necessitate working really, really hard. Now, all I'll say is, and I think that I probably did that copper box show. I probably did more than anyone, probably including New Japan, realize to to make that show happen, right? Yeah. Um, and I will say, when I used to, even the shows I used to run in Sittingbourne, when I used to run those, they used to wipe me out for a week <laughs> after running the show. Now I could run that show. I could wake up today and run that show this afternoon and then be fine the next morning. I don't know. We've had a lot of time off, so I might not be. But like, you know, where we were at, that's how I would be able to, to do that show and handle that show. Mm. That evolution happened once I got used to running your call shows. Your call shows would then give me that. You're knocked out for a week after, which then made those sitting born shows a lot easier because they became less higher pressure. Mm. And You've dealt with the your call shows on that level and again i'm saying when i when we get back i'm probably going to be stressed to god knows where but like um you know but when we get back i had i'd like to think that your call shows will still be like that because that's where they've got to you know that last your call show we did was a dream to run you know it was easy mm. and that's the way i want it to be um but it's only easy because you've got that experience, that muscle memory of doing it again and again and again, putting yourself under that scrutiny, under that pressure. And, and again, I, that's why I never look down at anyone who's doing this on a, on a lower level than myself, um, because I know it takes just as much effort 
you know, and it's sometimes at the lower, lower levels, it's even harder because you're, you know, you are doing absolutely every ounce of everything all by yourself. Did I ever think that it would be like this? I never really, you know, I never really even thought about it. I never really even thought about it as a possibility. I never wanted to be a promoter. I still don't want to be a promoter now. Someone asked me, what's your, what's your least favorite part about being a promoter? I said, everything apart from the show itself. <laughs> it's genuinely, I believe that. Mm. I, I just want to book the matches and work with the talent and watch the show. That's all I want to do. I don't want to promote shows. I don't want to be dealing with venues. I don't want to be filling out paperwork for visas or booking hotels or booking flights or, you know, or writing press releases or dealing with issues or, you know, mm. I, you know, I, I don't want to be doing any of that stuff. I don't want to be putting up posters. I don't want to be designing posters. I don't want to be promoting stuff. All I want to do is put on the show. I would do the video production. I don't want to do any of that. <laughs> right. But like, it's a necessity because in order to do what we're doing at the level we're doing it, that's what I have to do. Mm. And I don't think people appreciate that. And I think often that people will look at it. So sometimes a video production lets us down. Sometimes some audio might let us down or sometimes stuff might not look as polished as, as, as we'd like. And sometimes there might be a spelling, a typo in a press release or whatever. And I just don't think people realize the amount of stuff that one human being has to do. Um, it's crazy. And- like some of the stuff that happens on the day as well. Like you were talking about that summer sizzler show. I remember we turned up at the venue and it was, uh, was it a ladder or a table that just came in? It was completely wrong. That was, Oh, that was a different show. That was, a, was it? Yeah. Oh that, yes. Yeah. That was a table. Um, yeah. And yeah, that was a table. So yeah, they was, just sent just a regular plastic table with like really thick. <laughs> it, it, was, it, came, it was half, it was, it was, so we'd ordered tables, but, and I'd ordered the same tables as I'd ordered before. Mm. And obviously because of their size and stuff, it's easier to get them ordered to the venue. Yeah. And we aren't, the packet came and I was like, wow, this doesn't look right. And I was like, Perhaps it's one of those tables that's folded in half, you know, but mm. no, but two tables that were literally half the size they needed to be. So we had to resourcefully get the ring cleared out. Obviously, get once the ring was unloaded, called the place, found out where they were based. Luckily, they're only a couple of hours away. And then we said, look, if we send someone down to you, can we get the right size tables? And fortunately, it was okay. Um, yeah, because so- they put them in a cardboard box which had the correct thing on it, but inside was the wrong table, I think. Absolutely, yeah. And it was just like the, the amount of stuff that goes into a show on the day as well that people like because fans will literally just buy a ticket, turn up and expect everything to be perfect. But like, like you say, there's like a hundred different things you're juggling on that day to make the show there, run. There was one there was one York Hall show whereby so this was before we had the second van. So we had to unload one ring from one van and unload mm-hmm. a 16 foot ring and load an 18 foot ring in. And the ring, the way the 18 foot ring was stored, it was against the side of the, of the training school and next to a ring. And basically the ring had got loaded in. And I always say it's wonderful having trainees and, and who, who want to get on board and help. But I, you, you may notice that, well, there's a bit of a disconnect with the training school, which we're going to correct, but like, um, yeah. but, um, but you may notice that when we go to a York Hall, I'll only have a small crew of people. So it might be four people to do everything, as an example, right? Yeah. 
there'll be four trusted people to do it because obviously when you've got a small amount of people who know what they're doing it's a lot more effective than a load of people who don't know what they're doing yeah and obviously to make our lives easier we always used to try and coincide the ring van loading and emptying with the end of a training session so at the end of a session everyone would pitch in and that way rather than carrying all the pieces of the ring you probably only got to carry two and it's just light work many hands makes light work however because there was so much stuff getting put in as we were going nothing was being kind of checked into the van um so we were one piece short on the <laughs> one of the cross beams short oh i remember this and we put the ring up mm. and there was a piece missing we're like go and check the van for that piece no it's not there and like what had happened is that piece had where they where it was all kind of stored the piece had just kind of um was just kind of again was almost underneath the 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 ring skirt so mm -hmm. it was kind of hidden so you know we always do idiot checks now as a result of this as well um but um so that piece was missing that piece of the ring on the day of the show on a mm -hmm. friday in the worst traffic ever so it's like, we can now go all the way back to Portsmouth, which is going to take a minimum of two hours, but more likely four, then the same back, which takes us right up to the, the time the show's starting. So what do we do? So what we did was we called around the steel fabricators in Bethnal Green and got someone to make us a new piece that day. And <laughs> that's how it happened. Yeah. There was a steel fabricator down the road Took a, piece, took a piece of a ring there so we knew the measurements and whatever and and we had a new piece of a ring made on that day and and that's, that's that was my first York call oh was it really yeah because yeah, uh Zoe was in Japan or America so you'd asked me to come down and that was my first experience of a York call was that Chaos. and then yeah and then the next day when the other beam had bent oh you're getting gone. confused again that was another time Oh, was it? Oh, yeah, geez. Oh, God. That, so that was one time that happened. And then the, the, this show you're thinking of, you're thinking about um, one of the, the Global Wars, which had yeah. and Tomohiro Ishii on, and they'd done a big move and they'd made one of the one of the beams bend. Of yes. the ring. This, this, this steel, which is designed <laughs> for... Um, so the guy that, that reinforced it all, um, he made the football stands for Haven and Waterlooville Stadium. So he's just like, these rings will outlast me. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, um, and uh, yeah, they're, they're, they were so big and the impact was so big. They bent the bar of the ring. And then when we put the boards on and we hadn't noticed, because obviously we're just taking the ring down that night, moved on to the next venue. We put the boards on and it's like a seesaw. And, yeah. um, and then we had to decide what to do about it. And we wound up having to drive the van over it. We put a board on that. <laughs> So we're, so we're taking a big risk here because if we snap the pole, we're, we're in a lot of trouble. Um, and also, um, we put a board on there. So if we snap the board, we're a lot of in a lot of trouble. So we had to drive the, the ring van over the top of this board onto this pole. And it wasn't heavy enough to do any damage. So then we had to get like every all the crew into the back of the van to wait down this, this pole for 15 minutes, 20 minutes or whatever it was to straighten it out um, to then put it on the ring. So uh, it's yeah, it's yeah. People don't see this stuff, but it's uh, you know, it's all stuff like that. But I tell you what, it's probably taken some years off my life. Um, oh yeah, all of that stress. Um, but you know, that, again, it's those are stories that people don't see, and and 
those are stories that make these times so much more stressful than they need to be. But um, but yeah, and it's like the time I ordered the ring for Royal Quest, and unfortunately, I ordered a uh, so I ordered a brand new ring for Royal Quest, mm. a twenty foot ring, and uh, I meant to order one which was a breakdown ring, the same as our eighteen foot ring, but somehow, some way, I managed to order twenty foot beams. <laughs> <laughs> And then I realised it didn't fit in any vans. Uh-huh. So then, I, then I had to find a logistics company in order to transport the thing. Um, so that was a laugh also. But, you know, but again, we find we find ways to, um, you know, get through all these problems. Um, problem solving is probably... The, I think, in fact, that's probably a good answer to your question. You know, problem solving... One of the earlier questions about, yeah. you know, did you realise what would go into it no i didn't it was just kind of all thrown upon me but i feel like problem solving is perhaps the biggest skill that's required for someone who's going to do this at the top level and be successful because you've got to think on your feet constantly yeah cool um i did oh uh, i have a question it sort of relates to something you said earlier about how when you were younger you were trying to find wrestling you weren't sure if you could get into it because um you weren't aware of like the local shows and things like that i had something similar where when i was growing up i never thought wrestling was something i could do because all my local shows always had american in the name or be like the american supersize american wrestling do you think that's something that local shows should try to avoid and try to be proud of being british professional wrestling um well yeah well i feel like it's i so i get why they do it because so up until probably still to this day, if I speak to a local journalist, like it's insane. You speak to people and you, you talk about professional wrestling. You say, oh, I'm running a wrestling show. They're like, oh, you mean like Big Daddy and Giant Haystacks? Mm. Oh, so my God, yes. I've spent my whole life trying to move away from that, um, you know, that perception of British wrestling, you know, two fat old men doing belly bumps in the middle of the ring. You know, that's... <laughs> And, and, and again, like I'm not knocking Big Daddy and Giant Haystacks. They did great business for what it was. Perhaps outstayed their welcome in terms of, you know, there was a diversifying style which, which promoters never took advantage of. But because of that, what's the easiest way to say we're not, we're not that crap with the American, you know, with the stuff like yeah. what you see on the TV, you know, put the word American in there. American style professional wrestling. You know, wrestling is one of these things which is so hard to define because like, you know, I say like pro wrestling gives so many people a pass to say that they're professionals when they're really not. Like, you know, like if you look at football, there's a difference between pro football and like football, right? You can play football down the down the park with your mates, right? Um, you can play football for Sunday league football, which is, I guess, you know, goes up towards semi-pro and then you've got actual pro football. There's a big difference, right? And I think we've got a lot of Sunday league wrestling going on where where you know which i wouldn't deem as professional but we call it professional wrestling and and, and that's not a knock on it you know i might call it semi-professional right but if you you, you know if it's a hobby it's not really a profession you know mm. um and i feel that you know it's we we call it professional wrestling because we're deviating between ring-based pro wrestling and um an amateur wrestling amateur style wrestling that you see in the Olympics. So a lot of wrestling shows, they get a pass of being pros purely because they're living, they're living off that, um, they're living off that difference, you know? Um, So 
Um, so I get it. I get why people use that term American wrestling. You know, they're wanting to they're wanting to differentiate themselves from Big Daddy and Giant Haystacks. They're wanting to give people expectation of what you can you can see. And, and as well, they always say people always say, is that proper wrestling or wrestling like the WWF on the telly? Right. And it's like, well, yeah, it's like WWF on the telly, you know, like <laughs> the best way to term that is American wrestling. Right. Now, I've, I've always been a firm believer and I and I've always had and my, some of my early posters used to say American style pro wrestling. Um, but I've always kind of tried to dedicate my uh, my existence to creating a bit of brand recognition. You know, I spoke earlier about the FWA being the first promotion to have a real identity, real production, real characters, etc. And that's what I've tried to do with Rev Pro. You know, I want people to come to a Rev Pro show, not oh, I'm just going to some British wrestling show, you know. <laughs> I want people to go, I'm going to Rev Pro. I'm going to a Rev Pro show. Um, and I think that that's a big part about identity building. And you are right, Aidan, when you say, like, you know, it is important for that, um, you know, that blasé American wrestling approach to be uh, eradicated if you're going to take what you're doing to the next level. You know, you don't, uh, you know, AEW weren't like WWE style pro wrestling. Do you know what I mean? That's the equivalent yeah. of what it is. You know, they're like, this is our version of pro wrestling. And that's exactly what we're trying to do. And that's what I feel like, you know, again, there's nothing wrong with doing American style pro wrestling and having those posters up and attracting just your local audience. But, you know, if that's your mindset and if that's your mentality, then that's all you're ever going to be. You're going to be a traveling circus, right? And there's, no, there's nothing wrong with being a traveling circus if it earns you a living. Don't get me wrong. Right. But I've always aspired to that level above that identity, that product that you can be proud to bring your mates to. So, you know, if 13 year old me took my 10 mates to that show rather than, you know, all those years ago, rather than it being four mates turn up to the next one. What I'd like is it to be 12 mates turn up to the next one because word of mouth's got around, you know, and I want to create those experiences for people. And I want wrestling to be a, uh, a thing where you can just bring your mates to who are, you know, who aren't necessarily wrestling fans and we can turn them into wrestling fans. And I want wrestling to be an, as acceptable a night out as going to watch a movie at the cinema, as going to watch a play in the uh, the theatre. You know, I want to create wrestling as that, you know, acceptable, fun, different night out. <coughs> cool. Um, so something i do when we have guests on is we play like a like word association so i'll name a venue an event or a wrestler and you just tell me like the first match that comes into your mind okay so uh bret hart summerslam 92 okay uh just because we we're talking uh, about it earlier probably wouldn't yeah, have okay. been talking about it earlier but okay um your call iconic okay uh Tokyo Dome. Historic. <laughs> uh Madison Square Garden. Oh. Uh the just the home of professional wrestling. Okay, and uh, WrestleMania. Firework display. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean that in a I mean that in a nice way. Oh yeah, no, I get that. Yeah. So, so so the way I'd liken it, so 
I went to uh, my first WrestleMania weekend. I likened it to this, right? So you've got all the independent wrestling shows going on. You've got the conventions. Um, you've got the, um, you, the, you know, the signings, the Q&As, uh, spoken word. You know, everywhere you look, wrestling's there. You've got the pop-up wrestling shops, whatever have you. Um, and the culmination, and obviously you have the Hall of Fame. You have all the independent shows. You know, all of this stuff combined and the culmination of this is this huge spectacle that is WrestleMania. You walk into that stadium for WrestleMania and you can't help but be drawn back, you know, take a deep breath by, you know, the enormity of everything. And it's just like a huge firework display at the end of what has been, you know, a week of celebrations for professional wrestling fans. And that's why I call it a firework display. <laughs> awesome. Cool. Well, we'll wind it up there. Thank you very much, Andy, for taking the time out of your day to join us. We know you're very busy. Um, the world looks to be returning to normal relatively soon, so training will be back on shortly, um, as you've already said. Shows will be hopefully up and running not too long after. Um, is there anything else you want to mention while we're on here? Any... Uh, want to plug your twitter or instagram anything else um i guess the key things are revolutionprowrestling.com is a website where you can get all the everything you possibly could need for the rev pro stuff and it's got the it's got the links to everything else as well so that's probably the best place to go revolutionprowrestling.com um but obviously we've got rpwondemand.com that without it we wouldn't be able to exist so as right now because <laughs> of it virus but um you know we're still putting not new content on rpwondemand.com it's our it's our version of a wwe network if you will um and we're putting up our empty arena shows um we've got our entire archive on there um and we're currently going through the Southside wrestling archive and putting up Southside wrestling shows um with some great names great first time unique matches um so rpwondemand.com is really important to us as is shoprevpro.com um which is the official home for rev pro and new japan pro wrestling merchandise so shoprevpro.com is that one um so those are those are the keys really um and of course yeah we're, we're getting back to shows this summer back to business we're calling it um i think we've got 25 shows booked in between now and the end of the year so far and we're not stopped yet um but um you know to reassure fans that we're doing everything by the book and um you know, all COVID guidelines will be followed and there's COVID flexibility on all our shows. So any tickets which are purchased, you can purchase in absolute confidence that you can get a refund um, or your ticket moved to another date um, should the event not be able to go ahead or should you not be able to attend for COVID-related uh, reasons. So, um, so yeah, just check all that stuff out. And, uh, and if you're still here, thanks for listening. Um, oh, did you um, want to plug the school at all? Since I think a lot of our listeners are either trainees or want to be trainees is there anything yeah. you want to say about the school well absolutely yeah so revolutionprowrestling.com if you click on the training tab you'll see all the information for the school um we're coming back in a, sa a safer way possible um when we come back um everyone will be tested for covid with a lateral flow test before each and every session to keep everyone nice and safe um and with obviously many more safety precautions um it's uh, really um over the course of the next 12, 18 months, you're going to really see a better synergy between the training school and RevPro in general. Um, and we're taking stuff, as anyone who, who came to the school during um, our post-lockdown one 
sessions will be able to attest to, um, we're taking things a lot more seriously um, and, um, and really trying to target whatever we can for the individual that's training. So, um, you know, for whether you're a pro across the circuit right now, um, you know, we do high level advanced stuff, whether you're someone just getting into it, doesn't matter what your level of ability is. And also it doesn't matter what your goal is. If you want to do it for fitness, if you want to do it as a, uh, you know, as to, to try and get to do one pro wrestling match, if you want to do it as a hobby, if you want to do it as a profession, if you want to do it as a weekend warrior, if you want to do it as a full-time thing, if you want to travel the world, if you want to travel the UK, if you want to travel Europe, whatever you what your goals are in professional wrestling, um, we want to cater towards that. So, um, so please check it out. Um, I always say the hardest thing about taking part is stepping foot through the door for the first session. Um, and yes. please don't be afraid to do that. Awesome. Awesome. Great. Well, thank you very much, Andrew. Really appreciate you taking the time out of your day. An awesome interview. Anytime. Thank you. And we'll uh, see you very, very soon. I do hope so. All right. Cheers. <laughs> Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.